Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. Hey everybody, Crew Chief Eric here, and with me today is special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, the one, the only, my brother from another mother, Mountain Man Dan, from our mountain region of GTN. This interview is going to be a great opportunity for you to get to know one of your fellow members of GTM a lot better. How did you get started in motorsports and with cars? How about you talk me through that? All right. Well, that goes back to when I was a wee little tyke running around. And for me, my stepfather was uh, big into drag racing as a kid. So I spent a lot of time going down to Mason Dixon Dragway, 75 and 80, back when it was still open. Spent a lot of time down at Maryland International Raceway, just going to the drag strips. And when we weren't at the drag strip, we were at the house turning wrenches in the garage. And I tell people all the time, for me, math turned out over time to become my strong suit. But for when I was young, I had issues with trying to learn fractions and honestly sockets, like being a tool gopher grabbing sockets and physically seeing the different sizes and the fraction sizes for standard sockets was how I learned you know, my fractions. Do you measure your beard with sockets now? Is, is that how that works? I haven't, but we might have to do that. Are we going with uh, shallow or deep well sockets? Because I'm <laughs> sure I'm definitely a couple of deep well sockets in length. <laughs> I was going to say, early on, you got influenced by drag racing. And, and that's, you know, just one of the multiple disciplines of motorsports. Do you have a favorite discipline? Is it still drag racing? Or did you evolve into road racing, rally, motorcycles, autocross, karting? Like, what's your favorite? I would have to say that probably my motocross is my favorite. The reason why is I think motocross is, takes a lot more guts than many other disciplines. As you experienced recently at the off-road event at my house, that it's a lot more of your body getting abused than many of the other disciplines. My body doesn't hold up to it as well as it used to when I was younger. Other than that, just the feel of going, you know, 20, 25 feet in the air and then that feeling of like just floating I always enjoyed that did you do motocross competitively or more of just for fun it was more just for fun but I did ride with a couple guys that did uh, ride competitively when I was stationed in the military especially when I was stationed down in Georgia I got to know a couple guys and one of the guys he was typically a podium position finisher there in the southeast region and he had a track at his place and a couple of, through him, I met a couple of guys had tracks at their houses. And so we'd go out, you know, ride for a couple hours, get done, drink some beer, grill up some burgers and just hang out. <laughs> and we always had a really good time. And other than that, if it wasn't, you know, going to an actual motocross track, I've been riding in the woods since I was a kid. When my mom and stepfather got divorced I spent a lot of time at my grandparents house there's quite a bit of woods around their house and as kids we always tend to go hide out back in the woods make trails for our bicycles and stuff and then I remember my first dirt bike that I ever bought on my own was more of originally like an enduro which was a Suzuki TS 185 and I bought it for 300 bucks nice. and that was the first one I bought myself I was probably about over 13 years old at the time from there i i bought it had it for about six eight months and then that winter was a pretty long winter so i was like you know what down in my grandparents basement i took it apart 
cleaned up the frame, repainted it all, put it all back together, resealed a bunch of stuff on the engine. And then that bike I actually taught my little brother to ride on. It uh, wound up in his possession for a while. Uh, where I grew up at, it was known for floods occasionally. And unfortunately, it didn't make it out during one of the floods, so it wound up with a bunch of water in it. Whatever happened to it, I don't know. Yeah, we moved on to bigger and better bikes. We wound up with a Yamaha 402 stroke at one point, which was a beast. My brother had actually started working at a machine shop that a family friend had owned, and he decided he wanted to build for more power. So he built it, boarded it out to the max and everything. And it was a hot running engine after that, uh, temperature-wise, but it had a lot of power and compression as well. And my brother not letting me know how much compression it had, I, Take in mind, I, I might have weighed 110 pounds soaking wet at this time and <laughs> could barely hold the bike up. And he brought it home from the machine shop and I kicked down on the first kick and it had so much compression. It threw me back up over the handlebars and I landed on my back in front of the bike. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they're laughing and enjoying the fact that I looked like a fool flying through the air. There you go. But yeah. Even this weekend, I mean, I saw you riding your Banshee, which is a, you know, more race prepared ATV. And I mean, I could definitely tell you've got a lot of experience off-roading, but knowing you later in your life, you've got experience in, in other disciplines as well. And you've just recently got into road racing. We've gone karting together and a, and, a, and a lot of other things. I know you have a big competitive side in you, but I got to ask you this question. Who is, in your opinion, the greatest motorsport driver, pilot, or rider of all time? If you had to pick one. If I had to pick one, that's difficult because I don't know that there is just one because there's so many different, you know, you think about like for motocross as a kid growing up seeing Jeremy McGrath ride, he was phenomenal. But then you look now modern day, not so much now because he's gotten out of it and gotten into freestyle, but like Travis Pastrana was mm -hmm. amazing. All these guys keep coming up through the ranks and the guys that we grew up with that we thought were phenomenal don't hold a candle to these new guys. Exactly. And so, I think so, it's the same with all, you know, aspects of racing. So I'll ask you this then. I'll, I'll try to whittle it down for you. If you could meet one motorsports legend, dead or alive, who would that be? I honestly never thought about that. So I can't give a good answer. <laughs> I'm going to twist it a little bit. I, okay. I'll say I've been fortunate and have met a few guys who were icons in the industry that I've told you the story about multiple times was Big Daddy Don Garlitz, renowned in the drag racing industry for advancements he made to his his rail and everything all kinds of different things that he was testing and experimenting with at that time and unfortunately i never got to see him race because other than in videos but i never got to see him race it live because by the time i met him when after he'd had pulled a shoot and the negative g-forces on his body actually separated his retinas from his cornea and his eyes if i recall correctly and because of that it caused problems with his vision but it makes you think that if you're going that fast and you pull a shoot and it's yanking you forward that hard, you're, you're moving pretty quick. There's some overlap history there with Garlitz. And, you know, we recently we've gone to Autofab several times over in Elkridge and the old Coleman Brothers racing shop. There's some overlap there between, you know, your hero and one of our sponsors. So I always find that's really cool. Yeah, it's, and that, that was one of the things that's cool going down there. And, you know, they've had, got a couple little pictures here and there of older stuff that I've seen. And it's always interesting. Like as a kid, I, w I never would have known any of that work was done locally. It's an amazing thing to realize that I'm able to walk through the shop where some of the innovative things that were done on his cars may have occurred. And that's, I think that's an awesome aspect of history that some people 
might not appreciate, but me being a gearhead, I love that sort of stuff. What are some of the challenges you faced either in the racing that you've done or the racing that you're getting into? Impart maybe some wisdom there to say, what advice would you give to someone starting out in, you know, motocross or in road racing or time trials or whatever it might be? Kind of partner those two together. Other than the drag racing stuff where I grew up around everything and the motocross that I got into, I did do like some basic kart racing. I had an opportunity when I was younger to do some dirt track racing. For me, having multiple disciplines in my background, I think increases a driver's bag of skills, if that, if that would make sense. Mm-hmm. And other than that, for me, I've spoke to people like coming to road course racing, which has only been in the past couple of years and doing time trials and things like that with motocross being the fact that it's the more of the, I would say kamikaze of the sports for the driver, because when you get into a situation, you have to go into it knowing I may wreck and hurt myself and you have to wipe that fear out of your mind. So when I get out to a road course, because I'm in a, you know, a big can that's going to protect me a lot more than being on my bike or my four wheeler, then I tend to have more, I guess, courage than many drivers. Good example of that would be a year and a half ago when I put my car into a wall chasing down a V8 SS because on a dry day, I would have never been able to even stand a chance, but it was raining pretty heavy and I was willing to push my car to its limits and nature got the best of so we talked about this in another episode with Brad and, and about fun wheel drive, he calls it. I mean, it's the, the one great equalizer we have as front wheel drive <laughs> enthusiasts is the rain. I mean, obviously the Quattro guys and the Subarus have even more fun than we do, but it is fun to beat up on those rear wheel drive guys when the weather conditions are not optimal. Well, and other than that, I think a lot of it comes down to, I know that the guy driving the car that I was chasing down on track was not as senior of a driver. Like I said, it was one of those things. He definitely did not want to take a chance of taking mm-hmm. his car off track. So he was driving more to the side of caution than I was. My philosophy always has been, you know, and I, I believe it was an F1 driver may have said it, the fact that the that really thin line between control and chaos when you're driving. And the best drivers know how to get to that point and maintain it without going into the chaos side of it. I've always tried, no matter what I'm driving, to go to that level to where, especially like when I was doing motocross and stuff, when I would hit big jumps and stuff, and I've had my share of spills that wound up hurting me pretty good afterwards. But when I took that chance and succeeded, the thrill afterwards was amazing. I guess you could say it's a thrill junkie type thing to where that thrill, it's definitely worth potential danger of you know wrecking so (laughs) as long as you don't wind up with a uh concussion and blackout and don't remember what happened so i've had that happen which wasn't good (laughs) so let's let's focus maybe a little bit on like your current discipline you know looking at the road racing the de the time trials and that kind of stuff if you had to give some advice to somebody that was getting started and i know you've written some articles about this and if if you should if anybody's on our website right now search for i think like bargain hunting and and jedediah and there's a couple keywords you can pull up there where you've written articles about how you can do a lot of this on the cheap, but I don't want to dive on the deep end of that. I really am looking for maybe some advice you would give somebody that's starting out. Each different style of racing has its own aspects of starting out, and but for the purpose of what we're going with, we'll go with the road course racing since that's what uh, you've managed to drag me into over the past couple of years. <laughs> so to, I, I tell people all the time when it comes to the fact of, you know, the club itself and when I'm 
as, especially since I've stepped up to become a region chief. And when I go out and give my sales pitch to people of what we are, who we are and what we're about, I tell people all the time that originally the way I wound up in the club after you guys created it, I was like, my club member number is eight, but I didn't make it out to a physical event track side with everybody till like two and a half, three years into the club existing. I made it to plenty of the barbecues and hangouts and stuff, but I never made it to track because schedule and various different things. And I think part of it was the fact that at that time I was kind of leery with the road course aspect because I, I've seen after working on a couple of you guys' cars and stuff, it can get pricey. Yeah, it's true. The bigger Me the mistake, the more it costs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, for me, it was always, uh, I've always been that more, I would say I'm, I'm the cheapskate on the scale of the way I spend things. And other than that, I've always been to where instead of taking it somewhere, I'll do it myself or learn how to do it myself. So I don't have to pay somebody to do it. When it came to Summer Bash, we made it out and hung out and went out for a few ride-alongs. And at that point, I'd already went out and bought a car to set up for the road course, but I was not able to have it prepped to take out. It was a car that needed an engine swap done on it. So I get out there and we get to talking and I'm observing how different cars are set up and realize the car that I bought was not the most ideal. But it definitely fired the light inside with the desire to get out there. And I think, I don't know if it was the fact that you just want to be out there or just the fact of wanting to be competitive. And especially when you and I have been karting a couple of times, you and I tend to have very competitive streak with each other absolutely and i i really enjoy that the one time on car we were putting down very similar times but we drive different lines mm -hmm. and it's one of those things where you and i tend to have that brotherly you know arguments with each other <laughs> being like i'm the one that's right do it this way and it's funny that we both manage to do things differently and achieve very similar outcomes so I tell people that there's more than one way to skin a horse, as the old saying is. That is very true. It's very true. And I mean, you know, we debate that a lot as coaches. Uh, you know, there's, there's, quote unquote, the line. And then there's what works for your car, which is very, very different, or your vehicle in this case. To your point, even about karting, just to kind of throw some color on that. I mean, I prefer to sit as far back as I can, get the, get the rear end of those things to rotate. It reminds me of driving an old 911, right? I want it to have lift throttle oversteer. I want it to to drift. A lot of other guys are like, you know, how can I maximize my momentum and my exit speed, much like they're driving a Miata. I will say though, when we get out and we do our showdown events and we get out with guys that really do know how to drive, it is incredible. Just the, the competition, you're just waiting for somebody to mess up and then they're not. It, it's, it's, it's physically exhausting and also it's a mental game. I always enjoy the back and forth that you and I have. I mean, we joke all the time. It's like Batman and the Joker. You got all the fancy gizmos though. <laughs> I think a lot of good stuff here. And I think if people take the opportunity to go to the website and look at some of the articles you've written, and thank you again for being part of our writing team and putting that stuff together. I think there's some good information out there, especially if you're looking to get in and do this on the cheap. But let's talk, and this is this is a loaded question, but let's talk about you know some specific builds that you have going on, something that people might be interested in. We all know, well, maybe they don't because they're just listening for the first time. You have a farms worth of cars up at the mountain. I know you're mostly a bow tie guy. That's a Chevy GM. You've kind of come to the dark side with the rest of the Mark IV Mafia and have invested in that as well. But I know you've got some other special projects you're working on. So how about sharing some of that? My latest project that's been on the back burner for probably about four years. To those that don't know, I'm a 
major square body Chevy enthusiast and I have a bit of a collection of them and I plan to eventually have one from every year from 1980 up to 91. And right now I've got most of them covered. There's like, I think three years that I don't have yet. Um, <laughs> hear that guy? Then, That's just one also, part of the collection. <laughs> and I also have some outside of that year range that I've bought for other purposes, but those are the ones that I really wanted. And one of those that I'm building, I'm, been wanting to do a diesel swap one with either uh, Cummins, which is very common for the 12 valve or even a 24 valve with P-pump swap on it. But I wanted to try to keep true to the GM aspect. And I've been looking rather regularly for a Duramax that, you know, was out of a wreck truck. So I have a 91 square body crew cab, which was the last year they made them in that body style and has a utility bed with full boxes on it that I plan to set up as a track slash shop truck. Nice. To be able to go do like road calls and stuff like that for my personal automotive stuff. I've been very fortunate that one of our sponsors, I got to throw the name out there for Chaz's because they've uh, come through for me time and time again. And just by chance, they found me a Duramax that I'm going to be able to take all of what I want out of it. And so that'll be my tow rig slash, you know, really looking forward to getting started on that here in the next couple months. And, but then for track wise, I'll say my daily tracker, I guess you would say. For oh, wow. It's <laughs> uh, my Mark IV Volkswagen, which one of the biggest reasons I got was because it was cheap. Plenty of the guys in the club have it. Parts are plentiful. I've always been a hand-me-down kind of individual, so I'm all for hand-me-downs. And luckily, the clubs treated me well and gave me plenty of hand-me-downs for parts. And there's a lot of, oh, we don't need this here. You can have it. You can use something. You know, I, I can repurpose it or something. Every Volkswagen has a name. It's just part of our culture. What's yours called again? Jedediah. Uh, <laughs> Aptly named. Everybody, you know, was calling me Jedediah due to the fact of my Amish look, I guess you would say. <laughs> and uh, living up in the mountain on, in the woods. So aptly, everybody called me Jedediah when I would show up at events. And I figured, why not uh, have a Jedda named Jedediah? Exactly. So, it's perfect. It's perfect. Hence the, hence the name for it. And, but through one of our other crew chiefs, Crutch, he had an E36 BMW that he was building for the track and decided to go a different route. He and I worked out a deal and I picked that up. And as much as I despise BMWs and don't care for them, and I know I'm hurting many feelings when I say that. We're going to have a whole episode on boat ownership and BMWs at a later date. <laughs> I've owned a few over the years when I was in the military and stuff like that. And I'll give BMW credit where it's due for the fact they're great at making power on naturally aspirated engines. Agreed. But I, I do not like their engineering aspects for the fact they make things more difficult than they have too many times. And price for parts and specialty tools, I find obnoxious. The car itself in the U.S. is a status quo type thing. When over in Europe, it's the equivalent, you know, a three series here over there. The tax equivalent, like, well, not even that. They're driving Mercedes Benzes for cabs over there. You know, <laughs> three true. series is the equivalent of a Ford Escort here. Nobody wants to be seen in one. It's one of those things where I don't care for them, but then uh, worked out the deal with Crutch for the E36, and I decided, you know what? Because he'd already pulled the engine and trans out of it for his other E36. I said, I decided I'm gonna go ahead and uh, go GM powertrain in it. Initially, you, I'm just you're LS swapping that thing, right? Actually, not initially. And the reason why is the inline six motor that came out of it. I wanted something in there, similar power, just so I could see how to perform against other close to stock E36s. So just by chance, I haven't had two spare laying around 4.3 V6 GM engines, which are a 350 with two cylinders missing off of them. 
And I said, I've got them sitting there. Why not do something with them? 4.3 had a couple more horsepower than the inline six out of the car originally, but the inline six pushed out a little bit more torque than the 4.3. So comparably, the average of the two was close to the same for power-wise. So I'm interested in seeing how it's going to do. And I know the big thing that's going to help me with on track is the fact that the gear ratio is going to help me for top end speed with the GM transmission compared to the BMW one. I know that's something you and I tend to debate about is gear ratio stuff quite often. And the great thing is if I don't like the lack of power that it has, I can pull it out. And because the engine mounts will be in the same spot as the LS or a V8, that'll go in its place. (laughs) (laughs) Best sounding engine in your opinion. um, I would say, you know, I love the uh, motocross stuff. I love the sound of a two-stroke over a four-stroke any day of the week. I would not have guessed that. I figured you were going to say, big block, 454, blown shivet, (laughs) roots blower, the size of your house. (laughs) I I will say I do love the sound of any American muscle engine. But at the same time, I think, and I hate to admit this, I think one of the best sounding, and I'm going with my lifespan up till now, one of the best sounding engines I will say the newer Dodges during that first 20, 30 seconds of the fire up, they have that like raspy crackle to the exhaust, which is amazing sounding. Uh, during the nineties, I think one of the best sounding and I hate to admit it was the Fox body Mustang. The H pipe they put in there, just put that, it just equalized the back pressure on both sides of the exhaust and gave it a phenomenal sound. I think a lot of us agree. Uh, we're probably going to see this theme come up again. I mean, Sam preaches all the goodness of the Fox body constantly, but I think a lot of us agree the 5.0 Mustang from back in those days is one of the only things Ford got right. <laughs> it is a phenomenal well, sounding engine. The, and the, the funny thing is it wasn't so much the engine, it was the exhaust. Mm-hmm. They were one of the first ones from the factory to put an H-pipe in. And that H-pipe just, it made night and day difference because if you don't have that H-pipe, you got it's it's almost in stereo sound where it's back and forth, you know, but with that H pipe, it was just constant sound through both sides. And of course, me being, uh, you know, a bike guy as well. And when it comes to bikes, you got to love the sound of an old Harley. You know, you can't beat that blop, 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 blop sound of an old Harley. It's not cammed up, but it sure sounds like it when they're running. Lope it away like they got 800s or something. So did you just have to take like anti-allergy medication talking about Fords for this long? I mean, I I know how you are with your bow ties. See, here's the thing. I, I tell people all the time, I'm not a Ford guy, but I come from a Ford family. My grandfather owned internationals before Fords and all the way up till I'd say probably about eight, nine years before his death he bought nothing but Fords hmm. his entire, you know, life of me growing up, it was either an international or a Ford that he owned I used to give him a hard time all the time for the fact that somehow I went down the path of GM, but I've said, I've, I've always been a bit of a black sheep in my family for my side. I take that with pride because there's a lot of things I do differently, but that makes me who I am. And I've went the GM route, which I'll explain here shortly. But so with my grandfather, I used to joke with him all the time because he went out and wound up picking up a Tahoe because him and my grandmother went and bought an Explorer, but it didn't have enough space in it. So he went and upgraded it to a Tahoe. I came home from the military and saw this GM sitting in the driveway. I'm like, who's Tahoe? And my grandfather's like, oh, it's ours. And I was like, really? And I was like, so you bought yourself a bow tie bat, huh? And of course he would, it was like pulling teeth trying to get him to admit that he liked it. <laughs> and he like, he would not admit that he liked it. And he, he always kept his Ford pickup truck. So then they wound up eventually upgrading to a Suburban. 
And I used to give him a hard time all the time because his his Ford pickup wound up staying parked most of the time. And they took the Suburban in its place and even got to where they were towing with it because it had the same capabilities as his yeah. truck. So I gave him a hard time. But like, you know, I was like, I was like, you like that you like that Chevy there, don't you, Pat? And he's like, well, he's like, I like my Ford. And I'm like, then why is it staying parked all the time, Pat? You know. <laughs> I blame you 100% for the reason why I bought a SS Trailblazer. And I will openly admit, both my wife and I regret getting rid of that truck. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, it's so odd. I mean, it's a box on wheels, like everything else I've ever driven in my lifetime. But God, that, that LS motor was absolutely incredible. I actually want to take a step back because you, you mentioned something really important. And this is something special. It's special to you, but it's also indicative of a lot of the members in our group. And you mentioned the military a couple of times and you did some stints overseas. And I don't want to lead you on here, but that's actually where you get a lot of your mechanical background and, and your mechanic skills is through your time in the military. So you want to talk about that a little bit? So I'm going to have to correct you that most of my mechanics, mechanical skills honestly didn't come from the military. Hmm. But my mechanical skills I had before going in the military, but the military expanded my knowledge of different forms of i would say engines because working on an aircraft engine is way different than a automotive engine and like when i was going through tech school learning and everything i was thinking you know because everybody says you know working on aircraft you got to be a bit of a rocket scientist so to say to work on jet engines and stuff like that so everyone knows for background i worked on c-130s and helicopters as an engine specialist and when i was going through tech school because i knew automobiles so well I was trying to compare aircraft engines to a car engine and a car setup so it would make sense to me. And unfortunately, my one instructor was not in any way knowledgeable for cars. Mm -hmm. So he had no mechanical understanding of cars other than, you know, you drive it, you put gas in. So every time I would compare stuff, so as an example, the T-56 Allison engine on the 130s, not to be confused with the 256 Tremec transmission, because it gets a little weird there, right, with all those Correct. acronyms. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I threw Allison out there, because Allison, although Allison does make transmissions for GM, they make the, uh, Allison's a big proprietor, for, and I think they also teamed with Rolls-Royce for a while making those engines. The engine itself is a, basically a jet engine that's mounted to a gearbox, and the gearbox has a propeller mounted to it. So... I was trying to compare it to the fact of the engine transmission and the prop being the back tire spinning. And my instructor, he was like, no, it's nothing like that. It's nothing like that. Because he's telling me it wasn't anything like that. It took me a while to grasp how this concept was working. And then finally, and I was struggling in tech school because I think it was like six different blocks of training. And I was barely squeaking by him until like the fifth block. And then they said that one piece of information that clicked for me in my mind. And I'm like, oh, this is cake. I was like, this is nothing. I was like, the, the concept is so much more simplistic than that of an engine, a car engine for me. Because luckily there was less moving parts. There was no cams and things like that. You were working on a turbine, right? Yeah, it's a turbine engine that, you know, like I said, has a PTO shaft basically goes out to a gearbox. And it's funny, to, to this day, I can still remember the gearbox reduction ratio is 13.54 to 1. <laughs> how I remember that of all the random things that I should have remembered. I don't know, but that always sticks out in my mind that, you know, the gearbox on a C-130s, at least the J's and, and stuff like that prior to the new H models was 13.54 to 1. 
And I will say that was a Dash 15 engine, not a Dash 7 engine. So I'll throw that out there too. Well, we won't we will go too far in the weeds. It was interesting being able to travel the world the way I did and do the things I did. And I got to see a lot of various places that were not exactly the most luxurious places in the world, but it allowed me to appreciate what we have here in the U.S. And I wish people could understand how great we had with all the chaos in the world. We have it way better than many other countries could ever dream to have it. And that's why America is, you know, the land of the free and home of brave and people dream to come here. And we thank you for your service. Knowing some of your backstory, you spent a lot of time in England, which gave you an appreciation for the Mini Coopers and a lot of, or the Cooper Minis rather, and a lot of other vehicles over there. But you, and we will save this for a BMW tribute episode. You did have a BMW daily. I think it was an E30, if I remember correctly. If I recall, you grew into the British cars by being over there. You're kind of almost forced to in a way. Yeah. So because of the strict import rules and things like that that I was told about taking an American car overseas with you was difficult getting it through customs and things like that. Now taking them on my car that I owned at that time, which I still to this day own was my 83 Pontiac Grand Prix LJ being a V8 car, you know, and prior to me modifying that from automatic to a manual, I was getting, I think 14 miles a gallon out of it, which for an old eighties model V8, that's not hateful. But when you go to England and fuel prices are four to five times as much, then yeah, that gets to be, you know, not so good. And or England in particular being smaller and not having many, as many highways, it's more side roads, a lot more traffic. We're not, you know, hitting those top end speeds as well to where you're going to want to suck up more gas. It would have been more mm-hmm. like city driving mileage, which I think in that car before this swap to manual was like eight, nine miles a gallon led on to the fact of, as you mentioned, I've owned a couple of the old school minis and to this day, I still own half of one. <laughs> so <laughs> was there a Sawzall involved? Cause you know how I like that. I'm going to say it was more grinder than Sawzall, but oh, yes, there was the cutoff wheel involved. <laughs> <laughs> when I first got over there, a lot of the American guys fell in love with these little mini Coopers, whether it was Austin, a Leland, you know, whichever company owned the trade at that time. They'd made the basically same car, but had their name on the badge. By chance, one of my uh, guys in my squadron had bought one, and it was nice. Had like a little body kit on it and stuff like that. It was upgraded to 12-inch wheels, you know, because they oh, came man. with 10s originally. And the largest you could fit was 13s, but you had to cut the wheel wells and stuff like that to make the 13s fit. But so his was upgraded, had the 12s on it, which were nice looking wheels, had the little body kit on it. And it was just 998 engine, which was basically what they considered 1,000 cc. It's very close and, to what uh, Matt has in his uh, Lotus 7, I believe, because he's got a yeah, series motor in there. Yeah, basically the exact same engine, which English tended to use that engine across many different spectrums of cars. You know, the Austin Metros were a very key one that all the many guys would find that were wrecked and pull the engine out of because it was the same engine that came with the 1275, which was the biggest generation of that engine. Most of the minis that came with 1275s, earlier years were like the Cooper cars, you know, mm-hmm. so if you wanted a Cooper car it was a 1275. First one I want to pick up, I want to say I paid like $800 for it, if I remember correctly. <laughs> this and, is a growing trend with you. I know these sub thousand dollar cars. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm seriously thinking about getting it. Mike Finnegan from Finnegan's Garage and also known from uh, Roadkill has the shirt that says I flocked beaters and I may wind up buying one of those shirts. The minis, I picked the first one up for like $800 knowing that the engine wasn't running great because the guy who owned it, lo and behold, they're not very big cars. He had four 
full-size men in it, and they went out one night. I think he ran a little bit low on coolant and wound up, you know, frying the head. I think it overheated and fried the rings a little bit. So when I got it, it was running on like one and a half cylinders out of four. So, I mean, it would move, but it was struggling. You had to keep your foot on the gas. So I took it, and then by chance I found a guy who had one with the 1275 engine in it that cancer had gotten to it so bad. And when I purchased it off of him, the entire rear subframe section had rusted in half to where driving it from the one side of base over to the hobby shop on base, the car was actually riding on the tires in the wheel well. There was no suspension holding it up. It was just tires in the wheel well. And I had a nice cloud of smoke following me around the base as I was doing that because of the friction from the tire and the inner wheel well. So I got it there, used that one for parts, put the 1275 over into the first one I bought. And I had that one all the way up and was actually planning to ship it back here to the U.S. But unfortunately, co-worker and friend of mine at that time managed to not get it shipped over here to me after I came stateside. So not sure whatever happened to the car, but I do know in its final iteration of me having it, it wound up with a Clubman front end on it. Many of the people that are familiar with the BMW ones, the Clubman for the old minis was a boxy front end compared to the round front end. And that's, I think, I don't remember if I mentioned it in the um, article I wrote regarding them, but my biggest bone to pick with BMW taking over the naming was the fact they didn't keep true to the naming for the Clubman being the boxy front end, you know, the Countryman being the wagon, you know, the things like that. They kind of mixed them up a little bit. They put it into a cup, shook it up and threw it out like Yahtzee and was like, this is what we're doing. Since you spent a bunch of time in England, Clarkson, Hammond or May? I think Clarkson's a little more of the obnoxious one for me. I could see him and I butting heads a lot. <laughs> I think me and Hammond would probably be the ones to get along the best. But then I think me and May would have the best conversations. May was always more of the analytical thinking of the three. Mm-hmm. And I think he and I would probably have the best conversations. But I think, I think that's how we'll go with those three. Nice. If you had to pick a spectator sport... Which would you say is your favorite? Formula One, WRC, IndyCar, NASCAR, you know, Red Bull, Flutog. I mean, what, what do you watch on TV when there's a race on? So I hate to admit the fact that I don't watch much motorsports on TV. Although I do have the country background, most people would think I'm into NASCAR, but NASCAR, NASCAR just bores me to no end. And to all you NASCAR lovers out there, I apologize, but I just can't cheer on turn and left. <laughs> I need something that's more exciting. But I do love the roots where NASCAR came from at the dirt track. And I do enjoy going to dirt track races. I was just at one this past weekend to support one of our uh, club members who was out there because he's getting back into dirt track driving. And the environment at the dirt track is more, you know, down home grassroots type of environment compared to most race events you go to. There is no dress code. There is no... You know, you have to be quiet at this time. Everybody's out there hooting, hollering, just having a great time. And it's a BYOB event in most of them. So you'll see plenty of coolers around and people cracking up a cold one and offering them to you when you come by. So it's always nice to hang out with like-minded individuals. And I think a big reason that I like that, and when I do watch stuff on TV, most of the time it's motocross. Because, and I think the reason why is maybe it's my short attention span, I guess. NASCAR is too long of a race to watch the same thing. For me, motocross and dirt track, they'll do heat races where, you know, it might only be 20, 25 laps. So from the time that green flag drops to the checker flag, it's a short period of time. So those guys are out there pushing as hard as they can. And 
them pushing that much harder in a shorter period of time, a lot of times will lead to the possibility of more chaos happening. Yeah. So, for example, this past weekend, there was a car come around uh, turn four and hit a rut and rolled. Unfortunately, it happened before I got there. Luckily, to my knowledge, the driver was fine, didn't get hurt, because you never want to see someone get hurt in other sports. To see something like that, and it's, you know, you're sitting there for probably 15, 20 minutes watching the heat race, and then that builds on to, you know, your final event of the night. A lot more action-packed in a shorter period of time, and I think it keeps you drawn in a lot more. My short attention span is because growing up at the drag strip where, you know, if, if you can turn, you're not going fast enough. You know, we're talking 10 seconds, you know, from start to finish. A lot of them guys are hitting 100-plus mile an hour in a matter of, you know, a couple hundred feet. It's, it's amazing seeing cars accelerate that quick. Well, if that bird is any indication of the time that we have left in our, our interview here, I do have one question left for you. You know, you're getting the full mountain experience here, guys. I mean, he, he is outdoors. If you see the video version of this, you, you can see a beautiful background there he's got going on. The final question, as you mentioned, you're member number eight. So you're part of the OG. You came on in the first year of the club. You know, we're six years in now. You've seen it grow. You've seen it change. You know, we went from that horrible Google Groups email thing to, you know, everything that we have today. I mean, it's been a huge evolution and, you know, we don't do any of that by ourselves. And, and I appreciate all the work you've done as a writer, stepping up as a region chief, you know, all those kinds of things, because it helps move the ball forward. And as Brad has said many times, without members like you, none of this would be possible. Tell us a little bit about your experience with GTM. Just kind of fill people in because you're, you've been here a long time and, and what it means to you and, and where you think things are going, especially now that you're, you're part of the board. So I tell people all the time that as GTM as a whole, I originally became a member guilty through association type thing, you know, helping you work on the toad at my house, at my old house before I bought where I'm at now. I was gutting it there in the driveway and welding in braces and things like that. It just constantly evolved. And because that was before the club even existed and any of the guys in the club had issues with cars, you know, if it was something you thought I'd know, I'd get the phone call. Hey, what do you know about this? You have this tool, things like that. And so I got brought in, not so much like the guy on track, but the guy behind the scenes turning the wrenches and when you guys where I could. And Part I've always, I'm the original uh, pit crew of GTM, I guess. <laughs> that being said, it was always really good hanging out with those individuals that were the original members. Whenever we'd have barbecues at your house or the picnics and things like that, that I'd make it out to. It's always been a great group of people to talk to. Being a veteran, I tell people that, at least for me, my experience as a veteran, you become real close-knit with people you're around. And it's a feeling of family. You know, even though they're not blood family, there's a strong feeling of family and the level of trust with people. And this club as a whole, I see, has that very much. And for me as a veteran and issues that I've had dealing with civilian life, it's it's kind of that fallback for me that helps me out in more ways than you guys realize. Now, military people in general, I would say, have a different way of humor. It's much darker than the average bear. Bunch of trolls. <laughs> no, we only have one troll, and I <laughs> I don't yeah. fall home for the You get to claim him. <laughs> no, I, I, I go anti-troll. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> we, what need be, we do well at trolling if we have to, but we, we do like throw those one-liner jabs out there to people, and that's the way we do it. And but it's it's one of those things where we will give someone a hard time, but when it comes down to it, it's it's that sibling rivalry to where you'll pick on a, a sibling, 
but it's like, I can pick on them, but you can't if you don't know them type thing. And that's what this club is. And the fact that this club bends over backwards to help fellow club members, even guys that they've never met yet, guys will go out of their way to help them out. Mm-hmm. And that is the great thing about our club is we are more of a family than your normal show up at a grocery store parking lot and look at how my wheels are offset and I got stance, bro. You know, nothing against those guys, but I'm not there to show off the way my car sits. Anybody in the club knows I'm not the least bit worried about how my stuff looks. You know, I'm worried about how that engine under the hood runs. And people know that a lot of my stuff isn't pretty, but it'll run. I've never been the flashy one. So I would say our club as a whole has grown a lot, continually trying to grow it. I know I'm not near the salesman that you are for the sales pitch of our club. <laughs> and you are definitely the original salesman. As of currently, we don't charge a membership for our club. Not many clubs are like that. Our club, in my opinion, is well worth an annual fee because of the added benefits of everybody in it and how we help each other out. And it's more family. And I'm hoping as time grows and we grow, we'll be able to stay away from membership fees. But, you know, logistics get in the way and we're probably going to have to eventually. Guys that are in different regions, you know, if you're passing through one of the other guys' region, you'll reach out to them, especially now since we've moved to Slack away from the Google meetings. It's a lot easier to where you can ping somebody on Slack and it'll be like, Hey, I'm coming through your region. You know, I got a flat. Is anybody in the area around that could help me out or point me in the direction of where I should go in this area. And within a matter of seconds, someone would respond. It truly is more of a family environment than your typical car club. And I remember as a kid, car clubs, we were part of, you know, like the Sunday, Sunday night drive in type meetings and stuff. And it was cool. People go hang out and everything, but the rest of the week, you know, you wouldn't see them guys. You'd only see them during the car club day. Our club, we do things outside of that. We have family gatherings. We have birthday parties. And it's, you know, all kinds of stuff to where we're always helping each other out. We're always, you know, involved with each other's families. You know, the wives and children are friends for the wives that aren't on track, but there are a handful that are. And I'm hoping we can get more of them on track. And my daughter herself, I'm looking to get her on track because when she turns 16, she wants to be in a car on a road track. Nice. But luckily, I'm hoping as of right now, because she's 14, and the drag strip allows them to run at 14, and so does the dirt track. So I may wind up buying a dirt track car. Who knows? Oh, boy. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's an episode for another day. Well, everything you've said, it resonates with things that other people have said about our organization. And I appreciate the kind words. And again, I can't thank you enough for spending all this time devoting you know, six years to, to this organization. The sky really is the limit. I, we have a lot of very imaginative, very creative people in the organization. And, and as you said, it's not even just a helping out. It's they're always willing to help with something. And we come up with crazy ideas and I've said this before, we either win it or we kill it, but, <laughs> but it's usually, you know, full send, always forward. We're always looking at what we can do next. And we're not repeating things for the sake of repeating things, right? When it comes to events and things like that, we do have our traditional events and you've taken over Summer Bash now. It's now part of the mountain region. Uh, you guys have a decent number of people. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I think you're in the teens if I, because we redistricted some things, but you have a good number of members out in your area and your area is very large. Is there anything you want to talk about just specific about your region and some of the things you're looking doing within your region so my region became a region i would say forcefully on me with you uh, you know nagging in my ear for years to step up and take a bigger role to help grow the club and i've always been very hesitant and procrastinatic when it comes to you know doing stuff like that 
So finally I agreed that I would step up. So I started writing some articles and then you guys surprised me with creating the mountain region and put me as the region chief of it, which I was. And you're not alone. You I'm, share that. You share that with Matt Wood. You have a, you have a yeah. chief there. Yes. So originally it was Brad and I, mm -hmm. and then Brad decided to step onto another role in the club and Matt, graciously stepped up and especially for a young member of the club to step up and take on that sort of responsibility. It was big kudos to him for doing that because I've been involved in the club since day one and it took me quite a while to <laughs> be willing to do that. So it was one of those things where you guys throwing me into that position was a factor of all. You know, I was amazed you guys trusted me enough to step up to that level. And as you and I have spoke for years, a big thing for the mountain region is we're more spread out we're not as densely compact as a lot of the dmv region is and because of that a lot of what we have out here is not so much road course racing and i know a lot of the guys that do drag racing motocross dirt track a lot of the founding members were all road course guys you know and i've been trying to expand that out and we do have a handful of members that do other styles of riding off-roading and things like that and there's clicks so you would say and there's the, you know, the road course click. There's the drag race click. There's the dirt track click. And a lot of them clicks don't ever intermingle. My goal, at least within my region, is to get a lot of those guys that have only ever went to the drag race, come out to the road course, check it out. Those guys that have been at the road course, hey, come out to the drag strip, you know. And I was hoping prior to all of the epidemic stuff with COVID and everything, I was hoping to try to set up a track night at the drag strip here for us to go to. And I was just going to do it during a test and tune night so we didn't have to rent the track out and it would cut down the cost for us. And we'd go out there, get a couple passes in and just have fun going in a straight line and see what the guys would think of it. Absolutely. And, and you and I have talked about this before. Every discipline of motorsport, whether it's drag racing, rally, road racing, boating, airplanes, whatever, anything with a motor and a way to steer it, right? They all bring something to the table. And, you know, my first time more seriously off-roading with you guys this weekend, instantly some things gelled and I was like, oh, I can carry this over from other experience. But then there were new things to learn too. So there is, there's a blend. And once you get the foundations down, you know, and that's why I joke, anything with a motor and a steering wheel, right, of some sort, that's the base principle of all. All of them but at the end of the day they all bring their own uniqueness and their own specialty and their own specialness uh to to use that word there's a lot to be learned and that's why my personal ideology is i won't turn my nose down to a new discipline or even a discipline i've done before because at the end of the day i want to get that thrill that you talked about that excitement from that discipline right going off-road and going autocrossing, carting, whatever it is. And so that's what makes it fun. Doing the same thing over and over again, you know, going to Summit Point for 80 events, yeah, that just gets boring, you know. It, it's good to mix things up. And so I think I think you're you're hitting the nail right on the head and, and you are bringing a lot of that in. I know this year's been really tough to schedule with COVID. Uh, we had some things planned in your region. Uh, Summer Bash is is delayed. We're still doing that. And there's it may become fall bash before it's over with. <laughs> yeah. Right, right next to Animal House for the Northeast region. The Barbara Frischie Classic. We had some other things planned, drag strip night, et cetera. So I'm really glad you guys have really taken to the front of the spear in this case, the start of 2020 when we had our planning meeting. So we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do the other thing. 
And that's like, wow, that's really cool. So I'm really looking forward to some good things coming out of your guys' region. And I hope everybody that's listening pays attention to the calendar. And, and if you have questions about what's going on, reach out to Dan, reach out to Matt Wood and say, hey, how can I help? How can I get involved? You know, when are you doing this event? Hey, I got a great idea. Have you thought about X, right? We're very open to new things and we want to try new stuff. Again, I can't thank you enough. This has been a real pleasure. And I think everybody at home is going to get to know you a lot better if they ha- if they don't know you already, because you, you're a big personality in, in, in GTM at the end of the day. I think this was really good. And I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Oh, gladly. And um, I'm hoping everybody doesn't mind hearing me ramble on in the future because I do enjoy talking about topics that interest me. Yeah, we're going to definitely have you on in some other episodes. So with that, uh, I'm going to let you go and uh, we'll reconvene uh, soon. Definitely. All right, my friend. Talk to you later. If you like what you heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out at www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey listeners, Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization, but we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.